I'm Madeline Jane Abel. Welcome to Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, we will be discussing the transitional period that brought us the girl next door type and the beginning of the sexual revolution. Emblematic of this change is Anne Margaret at the very beginning of her career. I'm going to be discussing two of her films, 1963's Bye Bye Birdie and the 1964 film Viva Las Vegas. Truthfully, I find a lot of films from the 1950s and 1960s hard to watch because of the kind of sexism that is suddenly rampant in those eras of film. By the 1960s, the American movie business had for the first time fallen behind the culture. The sexual revolution ended up looking like a cutesy ad campaign for bikinis sold to the public by major American film studios. There was also a general air of punishment if a woman stepped out of her place in movies from this time. Husbands cheated on their wives regularly with a different type of girl, a common one, a dumb one, one made for the express purpose of sex. Wives were expected to look the other way, at least in film, and act quote-unquote sensibly by figuring out creative and thrifty ways to dress up leftovers for their husband's dinner. The seven-year itch starring Marilyn Monroe comes to mind. There are also a slew of films where the glamorous or powerful woman is made to look like a harpy and passed over for a literal Italian country girl. I'm thinking of the 1962 film Two Weeks in Another Town with that example. I think Liz Taylor is the big exception to this. She was way too glamorous to ever live next door, although she may have in an Andy Hardy movie or two. There is also Marilyn Monroe, who in many ways epitomizes glamour, but isn't afforded any of the power associated with it. She changed type forever. Marilyn always seemed broken. She was never afforded the rage that one needs to survive her level of beauty. She wasn't around long enough to fully possess her own glamour, and she came up at a time when she wasn't really allowed to. For me, it makes her difficult to watch. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is the closest I get to comfortable with her image on screen because she is paired with another woman who does fully possess the power of her own glamour. Obviously, Marilyn is iconic, and I think a lot of women have a personal connection to her because of what I'm saying, not in spite of it. Hers is a heartbreaking tale that can bring me to tears just thinking about it. I liked her in the noir she did called Niagara, where she plays the new wife to an old drunk. Her character is cheating with a younger man and is romantic and brooding, mysterious and sad. This was one of the few times she was afforded the right to a range of emotions. It was an outrage, but it worked. Now, of course, there have been many dumb blonde babes in film before Monroe, including Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday. But the thing with her in that film is she was angry. She was quick and funny and not irretrievably broken. Mae West, Judy Holliday, and Jean Harlow were all rage-filled and deeply funny. No one let Marilyn be those things. The 1950s and 1960s were rough. There are definite joyous exceptions, like Anne Margaret, who was placed in these pseudo-girl-next-door roles, like in Bye Bye Birdie or Viva Las Vegas. But she is such a literal showgirl that her viv cannot be contained in the house next door. I chose to focus on her this week mainly because the joy of her deserves an entire episode, but also, in many ways, she becomes the model for what Playboy ends up doing with its virgining empire. Hugh Hefner started Playboy in late 1953 with nude pictures he had purchased of Marilyn Monroe. 
I am dubious of the legality of the sale of those pictures, but we have seen it happen over and over again with women who find fame and then some asshole she posed nude for comes out of the woodwork to sell her image for his gain. As the magazine progressed and Hefner's oeuvre and ideology developed, he honed in on a clear vision of what his brand was, the girl next door. This idea really came out of the 1950s in film, in which he was deeply invested in. Actually, there is a history of the little girl as the leading lady that predates the 1950s. Silent era film stars such as Mary Pickford really perfected the child bride thing. But for our purposes, we are discussing the mixture between the child bride and the sexual revolution of the 1960s. This is a very different animal. Regardless, Hefner regularly had classic film nights at the mansion, and it was an area of bonding between him and Holly Madison, whom I will absolutely talk extensively about later in this series. Hefner wanted girls who were fuckable and who gave you the illusion of familiarity and potential containability. But over the decades of brand building and fabulous photography, he accidentally glamorized the girl next door to such a degree that she then became more powerful than he or the culture was prepared for. That's why Pamela Anderson, Holly Madison, and Bridget Marquardt are undeniably influential and powerful while Hugh Hefner is dead. My point is that his legacy is wrapped up in their power. Somehow, I don't think that is what he was after. So let's get into Anne Margaret. As I mentioned, she was the epitome of the little girl turning into a woman type. In 1963, the year her first major film came out, Bye Bye Birdie, nearly a decade after Playboy ran its first issue, she solidified her status as a teen sex symbol. She was the little girl becoming a woman that all men seemed eager to deflower. There is a segment in the television show Mad Men where a group of men make a series of comments to that effect while watching the opening sequence of Bye Bye Birdie. I will post that clip on Instagram at window dressing podcast for all of Anne Margaret's marketability. She was really it. I mean, that woman has star power in spades. It isn't just underage sex appeal. Bye Bye Birdie is a musical comedy from 1963 based on the play of the same name. Anne Margaret stars as Kim McAfee of Sweetwater, Ohio. Kim wins a contest to kiss Conrad Birdie, based on Elvis, on The Ed Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan is in the movie as himself. The role of Conrad was offered to Elvis, but according to lore and an amalgamation of memoirs, the colonel, Elvis's manager, and not a real colonel or anything else he claimed to be, turned down the role. It wasn't clear that Elvis even heard about the offer. Both my mother and I agree that if Elvis had taken this role, it may have changed the course of history. It is already such a fabulous movie, but can you imagine if Elvis was in it? Okay, I'm going to describe the plot of the film, but honestly, you need to watch it if you haven't seen it. So go do that, then come back. The role of Conrad Birdie was played by Jesse Pearson. Conrad is being drafted into the army to the great dismay of the female teenage population. His last slated appearance will be on the Ed Sullivan show, Kissing Kim. Anne Margaret's character, Kim, lives in a classically American town in a classically American home with her mother, Doris, played by Mary LaRoche, and her father, Harry, played by Paul Lind. She has a boyfriend named Hugo Peabody, played by Bobby Rydell. 
He is her steady date, and when she is tagged to represent the town by kissing Conrad Birdie on live television, it causes a rift in her relationship and the town's sense of propriety. The song that will be played after said kiss was All the Scheme of Rose de Leon, played by Janet Leigh. Rose, or Rosie, is the secretary and fiancé to Dick Van Dyke's character Albert Peterson. Albert is a wannabe songwriter with a degree in chemistry. His mother, Mama May, played by Maureen Stapleton, was in vaudeville, and she wants her son to be in the business too. Mama's boy at heart, Albert writes Conrad a song in the hopes of making it big, supporting his mama, and marrying Miss Rose de Leon. The romp that ensues is, as I mentioned earlier, well worth the watch. The film ends with Conrad getting punched in the face on live television by Kim's boyfriend Hugo and pretty much everyone living happily ever after. I think we have to start with the opening sequence where Kim, Anne Margaret, sings in a blue background by herself the title song of the film, Bye Bye Birdie. Kim is wearing a peach nearly nude dress that has a scoop neck and is belted at the waist. The costumes in this film were designed by Marjorie Wall, who also designed the costumes of Grease and Hello Dolly. Anne Margaret embodies the joy of womanhood and all that is mid-century American delight in this sequence. This is the sequence that warranted the lecherous madman commentary about her not-yet-a-woman sex appeal. I have a very difficult time disparaging or even being critical about any aspect of how she was portrayed in this film, because for me as a viewer, I was so excited to grow up and be Anne Margaret's type of blossoming woman. But now, as an adult woman, looking back at the change in type that took place in the 1950s leading into the 1960s, I see this fabulous musical sequence as an important marker of how exactly you glamorize innocence into sex appeal. This is it, and words fail to describe it. The next musical number I'm going to talk about further deepened my understanding and excitement of what womanhood would bring. When I was a little girl, my mom and I watched this movie religiously. She knows every word, and so do I. We would sing and dance around to it, and I, in many ways, took it very seriously. When I was re-watching this particular part of the film for this episode, I cried. It isn't a sad sequence, but just the sheer weight and warmth of it, for me, moved me to tears. Okay, so let's get into it. The song is called, How Lovely to Be a Woman. Kim is lying in her bedroom after just being on a long phone call with her beau, Hugo. He had pinned her earlier that day, which inspires a fabulous musical sequence about a game of telephone amongst Bobby Soxers. Pinned is a fun euphemism for sex, but really just a literal school pin indicating a steady date. A boyfriend-girlfriend promised to keep one's virtue type of deal. She is wearing an orange cotton circle skirt hemmed right above the knee and a short sleeve yellow blouse with a tuxedo ruffle down the front. She has her right hand over her beloved pin and a blue telephone to her ear. Her hair is worn parted on one side but voluminous at all points. Her signature gorgeous red hair creates a warm glow around her casually made up face. Pale blue eyes, peachy pink blush, delicately drawn eyeliner and curled lashes. She gets off the phone with Hugo and walks to her vanity where she looks at a picture of him and then her own reflection in the vanity mirror. The vanity is small, like a starter vanity for a teenager, complete with cream and pink ruffled fabric around the edges and only a few products on the surface. She sings, when you're a skinny girl of 15 wired with braces from ear to ear, then she leans back and cocks her head and finishes the line, you doubt that you will ever be appealing. 
She then spins in her chair and continues, then hallelujah, you are 16 and the braces disappear and your skin is smooth and clear and you have that happy grown-up female feeling. The song swells as Kim sings this line. I remember being so fucking excited for grown-up female feelings. Honestly, it didn't disappoint. It was just as exciting as Anne Margaret made it sound. She continues the song while changing out of her brightly colored outfit into a ratty brown mohair sweater. Side note about the 1960s, there are several films that take full advantage of the advent of Technicolor in their set deck and wardrobe at this point in time. Bye Bye Birdie is one of them. Kim's room is a pale lavender that sets off her hair in yellow and orange frock. They take every opportunity to surround her in soft, feminine backgrounds while placing her in bright, over-the-top feminine frills. This works well and makes the movie feel exciting. It also, by extension, makes being a teenager and a woman feel fun and sweet like candy. The chorus of the song, How Lovely to Be a Woman, The Wait Was Well Worthwhile, is sung while she is unbuttoning her blouse underneath that big sweater. It's a childish striptease that maintains propriety but is highly suggestive of underage breasts. The Sweater Girl of the 1950s comes to mind. Knits aren't always that innocent. While removing her skirt, she sings the lines, Whenever you hear boys whistle, you're what they're whistling at. This line indicates that along with Kim's virgining womanhood is a coming awareness of the power source contained within it, and also the target it puts on her back, although she has years yet before that kind of reality ruins her life. That's what men are describing when they discuss the beauty of a blossoming girl. It's purity. I'm not talking virginity. I mean not yet victimized. It's attractive to them for monstrous reasons, but for me and other women, it's delightful in a deeply sad and wonderful way. Seeing the magic of a young girl owning her sexuality and her beauty without fear of being ruined by it is truly tear-jerking, especially when my own memories of that time in my life, albeit when I was 12, are wrapped up in my viewing experience. It gives you such a glow to know you're wearing lipstick and heels is another great line. She sings it with an upside down hair toss that ends in a sloppily pinned bun. The point of this sequence is the irony of a girl singing about womanhood while still doing childish things like wearing tomboys clothes and having messy hair. Obviously, what was ironic in 1963 doesn't always stand the test of time. It doesn't feel that strange now, but the song holds up as an awesome celebration of the delights that can be contained in womanhood. Conrad arrives in town to receive the key to the city and to sing a song to Kim prior to the planned Ed Sullivan show kiss. Kim stands on the city hall steps in front of her quote-unquote fellow girls wearing a candy-striped pink and white frock that is the sweetest confection of a dress you have ever laid your eyes on. It's a classic early 1960s dress, the kind my mom loves because she was becoming a teen at this time. The circle skirt is lined with crinoline so it poofs just right and is hemmed right above the knee making it girlish but also suggestive, like a doll with her skirt lifted up slightly. The sleeves are short but also voluminous like a bird's wings. This isn't the Adrian angel wing effect. It is like a fantastic but earthly creature preparing to take flight. Her hair, again, looks like a doll's. It is swept back with a headband that matches her dress and teased at the crown, or as Lana Del Rey would say, done up real big beauty queen style. Her makeup is also classically 1963. She wears subtly pale blue eyeshadow, mascara just at the outer corners of her lashes, and then most delightful peachy pink blush with a pale coral lip. 
Her look in this scene is a perfect example of a sexualized child, and this image did take root in the culture and in the minds of men like Hugh Hefner, who were, by this time, running with the theme of accessible and controllable sex dolls with the sweet side. But Anne-Margaret and her character Kim are allowed to embody blossoming female sexuality, regardless of the exploitation of it. And as a girl who really idolized Anne-Margaret, I will tell you that she in large part informed my understanding of what was delightful about being a girl and how to revel in the frills of it all. She is a fully embodied female performance. The doll references in her look come up over and over again in culture. It is an image that women can't get away from, and I don't imagine we will anytime soon. It's a double-sided icon for us. There's a sort of reparenting or witnessing that passes between a girl and her doll, but there is also the literal plaything that we are dressed up as that is the inanimate object for their pleasure. I always think about the directive on Top Model, be a broken doll. It is what is used most often to get the best shot of the girls. Broken dolls abound in the next part of the key to the city scene. After Kim formally introduces herself as the representative of her fellow girls to Conrad, they all recite the Conrad Birdie Pledge. It goes as follows. I, of sound mind and body, do hereby promise to be loyal, courteous, steadfast, and true to Conrad Birdie and the United States of America. Unquote. After this patriotic ode to Elvis, I mean Conrad, the girls scream with delight and insist on ditching the city key ceremony to get to the singing. Conrad starts to sing a song called Sincere and knocks out the woozy crowd one fainting girl and woman at a time. The first to hit the floor is the mayor's wife. Kim outlasts most of her fellow girls, but eventually acquiesces to her dizzy desire and gracefully floats down to the ground. By the end of the number, which includes the lines, Oh baby, oh honey, hurt me, uh, suffer, the whole town is on the ground in a magic dream state brought on by desire for the man in the gold suit. The next film this week stars The Real Deal, Elvis, alongside the woman who is now being billed as the female Elvis, Anne Margaret. Viva Las Vegas came out in 1964, a year after Birdie, but the style and the look of things already felt very different than the year before. Not just the way Anne Margaret was styled, more woman and less girl, but the way the world looked. Clothes were changing fast, and the excitement of the sexual revolution was upon us, even if the benefits had not really been reaped and mostly served men sleeping around while women remained pliable and available and at home. It might be important here to take a moment to discuss the relationship lore of Anne Margaret and Elvis. They met on the set of Viva Las Vegas and by all accounts fell in love. I personally doubt that that love was consummated because of what is known about Elvis's extreme propriety around sex. He was also living with Priscilla at the time. They may have even been engaged. Priscilla famously dyed her hair blonde to compete with the fair-haired, albeit scarlet, harlot. Anyways, that's all gossip. But the point is, they had some kind of real affinity for each other that lasted a lifetime. The genuine respect and love is visible and very sweet. I don't want to be disrespectful to Priscilla and Margaret or the memory of Elvis, so I will leave it there. Viva Las Vegas opens with the title song, sung by Elvis as the familiar casino signs glow in their ethereal neon night. Elvis plays Lucky, a race car driver and ladies' man about town. He is gearing up for the next race by dropping his car off at the mechanics until he can go pick up the engine in L.A. While at the shop, he meets Lothario race competitor and older man Elmo, played by Cesar Danova. 
Both men are playing mechanic when they spot the sporty model that is Anne Margaret's bare legs. She is wearing white short shorts, kitten heels, and a sweater. She looks glamorous, but as previously referenced, sporty. This is important, not just because of the easy racing car reference, but because of the changing style of dress and body type that was in full effect by 1964. I already mentioned that the 1960 marks a time in Hollywood when the industry was behind the times, and that is true. Although the costumes and hair are trendsetting, the figures were slow to get hip to the no more girdles and bullet bra wave that the clothes of the time really demanded. This scene showcases Anne Margaret's character in short shorts, which is a definite change to full skirted frocks from Birdie. But she is still wearing a very structured bra that works with this sweater ensemble, but would not work with many other clothes of the time. We will talk more about this throughout the discussion of the film. One really good example of what I am talking about when I reference failed undergarments to clothes balance is Singing in the Rain. The movie is supposed to be a period piece with a modern flair. The technicolor part is enough of a modern flair for me. What does not work is putting women in flapper dresses with accentuated cone bra breasts. It's ridiculous to wear a bra with a drop waist. It's just incorrect. It's like wearing a belt at your waist when you're wearing an umpire waisted dress. Apparently, the costume designer didn't know that women in the 1920s would literally wrap their breasts with bandages to try to flatten them out to suit the style of the day. The absence of girdles isn't necessarily more freeing. It may not have been the costume designer's fault, or more clearly stated, it wasn't a mistake or something that was overlooked in the costuming choices of singing in the rain. It was just type over fit. What was considered attractive at the time Singing in the Rain was made trumped the era the film was based in, period, full stop. It's like if you were Kim K during the height of heroin chic. It doesn't play. Okay, back to the film synopsis. Anne Margaret's character Rusty meets Elvis's character Lucky and his love rival and race competitor Elmo, the hot older man with money played by Cesar Donova, at the local mechanic. She gets away before either of the boys get her name or number, so they spend the next night searching for her, thinking she is a showgirl. In reality, she is the more accessible type of woman that we have already established was all the rage at the time, the girl next door. Rusty is a children's swim instructor at a local hotel slash casino and a dutiful daughter to her father, Mr. Martin, played by William Demarest. He is an all-American Lake Mead tour guide and warm man who loves his daughter. While we are on the subject of showgirls, though, Anne Margaret had many Vegas shows of her own in real life, all of which Elvis delivered guitar-shaped floral arrangements to on her opening nights. Her character, Rusty, is also a dancer and attends Las Vegas University in addition to her job. When Lucky finally does locate the lovely Rusty poolside at the very hotel he is staying at, he finagles her into a date. She makes it a morning university dancing date. He agrees, but loses his money in the meantime, placing the race car motor and his hotel bill in jeopardy. He ends up working off the hotel bill and entering a local talent show to win the money he needs to drive the race. All of this is the backdrop of the blossoming love story between Lucky and Rusty. Long story short, he wins the race, they fall in love, and they get married at a chapel in the town made for marriage, Las Vegas, Nevada. 
In addition to being a joyous romp and likely Elvis's best film, it is also a love letter and tourist brochure for Las Vegas, the Hoover Dam, and Lake Mead. I know there are people out there that don't love Las Vegas and think it's adult Disneyland and so on. I find it to be absolutely magical. And a lot of the reason why I feel that way is my love for showgirls. And I truly think Anne Margaret is the ultimate showgirl. Showgirl costumes are among the most magnificent costumes in the world. They are capital A art. There are a handful of Hollywood costumers that also design for Vegas shows. Nolan Miller of Dynasty fame is one of the few that bridged that gap. The costume designer of Viva Las Vegas is Don Feld. He worked on several of Elvis's films and the 1967 Sharon Tate film, Don't Make Waves, that according to lore is what Malibu Barbie is based on. Sharon's character in that movie is a surfer named Malibu. Don't worry, we will get to Sharon Tate very soon. Don Feld did the costumes for Dead Ringer, Lipstick, Return to Peyton Place, and many other stylistically significant films. The makeup and hair in Viva Las Vegas are also important, just as important as the clothes. Getting into the 1960s, hair is a completely different world. We would truly be dead without the innovation in hairstyling, coloring, and the ready availability of hair pieces that we call extensions and they called falls that occurred during this decade. It was a real boom time for hair and makeup. The hairstylist was Sidney Gileroff. He was an actor turned hairstylist who worked with Liza Minnelli, Zaza Gabor, and Anne Margaret, whom he worked with on several different films. The makeup team consisted of two people, John Truey and William Tuttle. Tuttle and Truey, like Don Feld, worked on many Elvis films and the Sharon Tate film, Don't Make Waves. This group of artists helped create Anne Margaret's image, not just for this film, but in the imagination of a viewing audience that grows larger every day. The first scene I have chosen to discuss from Viva Las Vegas is the duet that occurs poolside and partially in the changing room after Rusty's shift teaching children to swim. The song, The Lady Loves Me, isn't the best in the film, but the outfit changes are significant. Anne Margaret's hair is a little more strawberry blonde than the true red it was in Bye Bye Birdie, indicating daddy's little girl might still love her daddy, but is ready for a daddy of a different kind. Her swimsuit is a pretty demure red number with false buttons up the front. When she is changing and Lucky is serenading her on the other side of the door, she puts on what at first glimpse appears to be a second swimsuit, but it isn't. It is a play suit, another more sporty number that is a sign of the time's design. It is bright yellow on top with a drop waist done up with a tiny bow and a darker yellow on bottom. It does have a built-in bra that shouldn't be there considering the drop waist, but it is a bit of an exception because of the oddly paired two-tone yellows. It feels very specific to desert resort wear in the year 1964, so it gets a pass on the elements that are just incorrect from a design perspective. Further proof of the resort wear angle is the fact that she wears this outfit with white slingbacked kitten heels. But the best part of this little playsuit is the jacket. It is a matching light yellow terry cloth-esque sleeveless robe style jacket with a belt. There is truly nothing better than a poolside romper with a matching robe. It's a thrilling piece of costume history and the yellow with her strawberry blonde hair that is worn in a poofed up pony is a fucking revelation. While we are on the subject of narrow hips, drop waists are made for narrow hips. They look horrible on women with wider hips. 
the elements of Anne Margaret's figure that are being accentuated in this scene and the opening short short scene is very different than that of Bye Bye Birdie. She is presented as sporty with big breasts. This is code for cool and sort of rough and tumble fun girl next door type, but with tits. It's like if a man could design a best friend that he also wanted to fuck. This is the advent of that type, the moment in history where the unrealistic, sporty, but capable of glamour type came into the popular visual lexicon. This isn't Anne Margaret's fault or her doing. She is, as I have already noted, a real showgirl and her glamour is undeniable. She is no pizza eating fuck doll. She is a star, but you can see a through line from her to the Playboy centerfolds of the 2000s. What happened in the 1960s in terms of clothes, hair, and makeup are sort of passed over as significant cultural products worthy of study. But in reality, they contain so much information about how women were viewed by men and what was considered attractive and therefore powerful at that time, not to mention the evolution of those qualities from year to year throughout all time. It's important to remember that men may have had all the power, but women knew where the power was, and rejecting their beauty in body, spirit, or mind wasn't the path to it, although some saw it that way at the time. In Anne Margaret's case, being a sex symbol is her fucking power source, at least visually. I know I have said this before, but that it factor is really different from pliability and fuckability. Men just can't help but attempt to contain what they want. The ways in which that desire functions aesthetically is fascinating. Both Elvis and Anne Margaret's it factor are on full display in the University of Nevada song and dance sequence. The song, Come On Everybody, is a fun moment where you see their mutual desire. We are also fortunate enough to be clued into Rusty's dancewear in action. Today we call it ballet core, but back then it was black tights and high heels, a kind of jazzy practicality. It was sort of a mixture between Mary Tyler Moore's slacks and a beat poet's uniform. Capri pants, tights, leotards, and those uber-popular ruffle crop tops of the early 1960s are all dancewear-inspired looks. Rusty and Lucky dance around, him singing on stage and her at his feet, creating a really sexy come-hither positioning that is exciting to watch. By the next scene, they are in love and meet eye-to-eye on quote-unquote equal footing. As a viewer, I really believe they love each other. A few dance numbers later, the couple are dressed in matching yellow getups. Rusty's wearing a knee-length wiggle dress, which was about to go out of fashion but still works here, especially in the pastel shade of yellow that is her hallmark and also a common occurrence in color trends of the time. A wiggle dress is a tight dress that you kind of wiggle in. That is literally why it's called that. They are awesome and truly hard to find. I have been collecting vintage for at least 20 years, and I've only owned three of them that fit. Eventually, these slightly trashy gems are replaced with sheath dresses, a looser and freer silhouette that is still recognized as the height of a sophisticated silhouette. Lucky, Elvis's character, wears black pants with a shrunken pale yellow jacket as he sings, quote, love your daddy all night long, unquote as Rusty does the dog, a kind of shake-your-tail-feather-esque dance in front of him. Thankfully, she is wearing just the right dress for the occasion and moves with, as my mom would say about Anne Margaret, an unfathomable energy. The lovebirds end up getting married in the last few seconds of the film. It was a good ending to the best movie Elvis was in. If he had been allowed to be in Bye Bye Birdie, maybe he would have been a real movie star, but that is not what happened. 
and Margaret reaped the benefit of the hair and makeup team that made the unglamorous character into a glamorous and indelible image. But Elvis was made up to look like a bullet train or a race car. They bubbled his pompadour so no wild or free sex appeal could escape with a tiny strand of hair. His clothes are not equal to his caliber of style or performance. For someone who has the largest private collection of cared for and curated museum pieces in his wardrobe, it's sad to see him stuck in a shrunken blazer. But all of that said, he and Anne Margaret shined in this film, even though Hollywood really hadn't figured out the culture or how to represent it without making a joke of it. Anne Margaret is still alive, still singing, and still releasing records. I chose not to talk a lot about her history or private life here, outside of what was relevant to the films discussed, because I really wanted to focus on how she helped shape the definition of desirability at a very transformational and transitional moment in history. Anne Margaret is fascinating, though, and has a long and storied career both in films and in Vegas. I hope to have a lengthy discussion of some of her Vegas shows on the podcast at some point. For now, I will just say that I find her to be one of the most joyous human beings alive. She lights up my heart in a way that I feel genuine gratitude for. Next week on Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door from MGM to Playboy, we will talk about another woman I take very seriously. Sharon Tate. Look for that episode at the same place, same time. Please like and subscribe to this podcast and follow me on the show's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Madeline Jane Auble.